0: We are in the book of Mark, we've been going through a series in the book of Mark, and we're in chapter 6, and so if if you guys could open up to chapter 6, and I'm going to read verse 14 to 29. Mark chapter 6, starting from verse 14. If you guys could follow along with me, I'll be reading the ESV version. King Herod heard of it for Jesus name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, is Elijah. And others said, is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And the King was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the King sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Amen. Amen, man. Thank
1: Thank you, you, Peter. Peter. Okay was everyone getting feedback? It was just me? Okay, good. Um, it's gone now, right? Uh, well, well, good to see you guys. Um, it, it's nice that we have like a sort of deadline to when we might be able to meet. So hopefully you're excited about that. Um, kind of makes me uh, miss this group even more, like the idea that we might be able to meet soon. And I hope you guys are staying strong and healthy. Um, and I think the pastors might announce this later, but yeah, if you're struggling through this period, uh, please do reach out to um oh sorry one sec please reach out to any of the pastors uh, including myself um just reach out to me i'd love to have a catch up with you um sorry, i'm just gonna i need to add someone into a high school room i don't know what happened okay daniel could you do that sorry could you add um noah to the high school group thing i'll leave that to you daniel i want to pray and then we'll we'll jump into today's sermon let me pray Uh, God, we just want to confess that, um, you know, we need your help and we need your grace. We need the power of the Spirit to align our minds and our hearts back to you. Uh, We want to meet with you and we want to hear from you. We want to be transformed by you. So, God, here we are. Uh, We open up our hearts. We open up our hands. Um, Do with us what you will. Uh, Speak into our lives. Convict us and give us the strength to obey you. Uh, In Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Today's passage uh, is a sad story, right? It's a story of the death of John the Baptist uh, and how it all kind of comes about. Now, if you don't know, uh, John was a bit of a miracle child. Uh, He was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, when they were biologically far too old to have children. And yet, you know, God allowed Elizabeth to conceive. And even from, you know, before he was born, uh, John was destined for great things for God. Uh, Luke 1 says John was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So even when he was in the womb, the Spirit uh, was, had filled him, and obviously God had a great plan for him. Now, as an adult, John took on a role as a prophet, and he actually went out to live in the wilderness of Judea. Uh, preaching a message of repentance, right? That is not easy to preach. And he went around wearing a garment of camel hair, Matthew 3 says, eating locusts, so eating bugs and wild honey. Now, so this is this kind of wild haired, probably unshaven, um, unshowered, maybe, maybe me two weeks ago, uh, John, like out there, like abandoning his kind of normal way of living. And in a nutshell, John was a godly man, right? driven by conviction driven by courage, and really unafraid of what people around him think, right? willing to do whatever it costs to chase after God and to live for God. And this great man of God in today's passage is beheaded, right? roughly in his early 30s, maybe 30, 31. When well, you imagine a person of such passion and purpose living for God, but losing their lives at such a young age. Now, I don't know how old you are, but 30, if you're you're young, 30 is probably not too far off from you. And if you're not young, if you're over 30, if you look back, imagine that at 30, your life was taken away from you. What a kind of sad thing it would be. It reminds me of a man named Jim Elliott. You may have heard of Jim Elliott. He was an American Christian missionary. Um, Jim, uh, with four of his friends, uh, became missionaries. And they reached out to a group of people called the Huarani people, a group of Ecuadorian indigenous people. Uh, they were known to be violent and dangerous, kind of isolated from the rest of the world. They lived in their own kind of place, didn't have contact with outside world. And you know, Jim and his four friends wanted to reach out to these people for Jesus. And through plane, they made contact through like a loudspeaker, they'd uh, passed down gifts with a basket. And then after a few months, they landed and they built a base near this village. Now their first encounters with this group of people, the Huarani people was, it was quite pleasant. And they even gave, you know, one of the people an airplane ride, right? They were like, able to go on an airplane, which must've been uh, mind blowing because you know, they haven't had contact with the outside world. Uh, but the sad story is uh, that not long after that, a larger group of 10, hurwani warriors they came and this is january the 8th 1956 and they killed right all five of these people and they'd only been there for a few months um, but they were killed now elliot was 28 he had a wife that left behind he'd been married for three years uh, he had a newborn a 10 months old is that a newborn baby 10 months old a daughter um, and you know, only after a few short months of reaching out to these people with no one being saved, right, he died. Right, you look at John, you look at Jim, and I don't know, maybe you think, what? Well, what a waste of a life. Right, what a life that was cut short. They had so much potential. They could have lived so many more years, um, but they sadly died too quick. You now, the surprising reality is uh, in today's passage, There is someone whose life is wasted, but it's not John's. There is someone whose death is meaningless, and it's not John's. There is someone in today's passage that is to be pitied, and it's not John. And what we're going to find is that John's life and death was actually a great life, and even a great godly death. Um, But the person to be pitied, the person whose life was wasted, the person whose death was really meaningless, is another man. The other character, his name is Herod. And so we're going to look at these two characters and I want to try to uh, maybe remind us what it is to live a godly life and what it is to die a godly death. So my two points today is the first one is the aroma of a godly life, the aroma of a godly life. And then the second point will be um, the acclaim of a godly death. So let's look at the aroma of a godly life. Now, again, in today's passage, you've got these two uh, opposing forces coming face to face. We've got John the Baptist, or really John the Baptizer. And then we've got Herod, the Tetrarch. Right? It's like a UFC match. Uh, it's the main event. And these are two kind of important people from opposing camps coming to a head, clashing. And at the end of the story, one of them dies. And John in the blue corner is very different from Herod in the red corner. Right? It, it kind of feels like they're opposites. And it feels like this is an unfair match because Herod, it just seems like he's got everything going for him. Now, I just want to point out three things. Number one, power. Herod is powerful. Verse 17 says, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. Herod is able to grab John throw him into his own prison that he has uh, just because of the power, the position that, you know, he was born into. Now, Herod is a tetrarch of Galilee and Peria. They call him Herod the king, even though technically he's not the king. His dad, uh, Herod the Great, is the king. But, you know, they use that term for him. Um, but he's, he's definitely a very powerful man, right? Throwing John into prison. On the other hand, John, he, he's kind of a nobody, right? He's the people's champion in a way but he has no official authority or title or power in the eyes of the world. All right, second, wealth. Herod wasn't just powerful, he was also very wealthy. And those two things tend to go together. In verse 21, we see that Herod holds a birthday banquet. Right, something that was common for the extravagantly rich at the time. Right, just throw a party, you invite all these kind of uh, rich and famous people, you eat a lot of good food, uh, have a lot of drinks, and that was Herod's life, right? But John was a commoner, uh, and you take this step further, he then, when he becomes an adult, he abandons that life and goes live in the wilderness, right? A very Spartan kind of monastic life. He dresses in a camel. He's eating bugs and honey, right? That's the kind of life that John lived. And then third, we look at morality. Herod is living uh, an immoral life. He's introduced as the guy who married his brother's wife, okay? He seduces his brother's wife, and he's now married to her, right? Verse 17, it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married Herodias, right? For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod's actions and lifestyle is kind of religiously immoral. It's unlawful, right? If you go to the Old Testament and Leviticus, this is accounted um, as something that you shouldn't do. On contrast, again, John's the opposite, godly man, right? He's the guy that is telling Herod not to live this life. And even Herod knows, right? It says Herod knew that John was a righteous and a holy man. And so in these three things, you've got total opposites. You've got Herod who's powerful and John, he's just thrown into prison you got Herod who's wealthy, and John lives a life that is you know, very sparse. It's Spartan. Uh, and you've got Herod who's living an immoral life. He gets to do what he wants, right? He gets to just pick who he wants to marry, and he just lives that life. And John lives a moral, lawful, godly, holy life, right? Two opposites clash. And we know how it ends, but you know, we kind of assume that we know how this is all going to roll out because Herod's got all the positives, he's going to throw John in jail, he's going to beat him up, he's going to kill him for fun. But interestingly, that's not really the way it works. Let's read verse 19. It says Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put John to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and Herod kept John safe. Now, that's really kind of weird when you think about it. Herod had power. He had the kind of power to send some people to grab John and throw him into jail. And yet in verse 20, it said that Herod feared John. How incredible is that? That this powerful Tetrarch fears his own prisoner. And the reason why is because Herod knew something was different about John. Even in all of his immorality, Herod looks at John. He says, knowing that John was a righteous and holy man. Herod will look at John and see that he was different. He stood apart. And the reality is that John was able to do something that Herod could never do, despite all that he had, all the power that he had, all the wealth that he had. In verse 20, it says that when Herod heard John, Herod was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. He's perplexed, but he hears John gladly. I love this kind of confusing phrase uh, because I think it describes the internal wrestling that a person goes through when their conscience is being poked at by God. Uh, If you're a non-believer and you begin to hear about God and the gospel and about sin, I think you go through these kinds of emotions inside of you. There's a part of you that's greatly perplexed, there's another part of you that wants to hear more. and that's where Herod is. On one hand, he's perplexed because what John stands for is confronting to him. John is saying that God is real, and obviously Herod's not living as if he is. He lives as if he is God. John is saying that you know Herod needs to live by a different moral code. He's telling Herod outright, it's not lawful to be married to this woman. You, you need to not be married to her. So what's Herod meant to do? He's perplexed as he hears these things. It's demanding a change. It's saying that he's a sinner. It's saying that there's a problem. On the other hand, though, Herod hears him gladly. Because Herod sees a man who's the opposite of him. But he sees in this man who's the opposite of him so much, I think, of what he actually desires. He's compelled to pay attention. In a sense, he's fascinated by this guy who has abandoned wealth. Right, is wealthy. He loves it. He's chasing after it. He pities people who are not wealthy. And yet here's a commoner who even gave up the little that he had to go live in the wilderness. Right? What's going on here? Herod, he was immoral. He gets to do what he wants, but he's a man. He's pursuing a different kind of life. He has a moral code and he's actually living by it. Righteous and holy and as he kind of lives in these confines with his rules he's joyful he's like what's going on with this guy he's willing to go to prison for this stuff and Herod has power born in it grew up in it used it abused it loved it chased after it but John he relinquishes all his power right if you know when Jesus comes on the scene John just humbles himself points all his disciples at Jesus just follow him He's happy to be a nobody. It's like Herod standing in front of the opposite version of him. And he's fascinating. Because I think deep down, Herod has, has all these things. He's chased all these things, wealth, power, sin, but he's unsatisfied. He's looking at this man in prison who has none of that, but seems to have so much more. And this is the aroma of a godly life. Right? That was my first point, the aroma of a godly life. John has this kind of scent that he exudes wherever he goes that attracts people to Jesus. Right? This is talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. The apostle Paul says, We, the Christ- we Christians, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He's saying that Christians have smell. That if we live our lives right and love the king, we live his way, we don't assimilate to the world, we stand apart like John did, we will smell maybe nice to people, to those who are elect, and they would be drawn to Jesus through our living. Just like Herod, his conscience is being stirred as he faces this man who's the opposite of him. I want to ask you, who, who is enviable here? Herod, in the eyes of the world, he's got everything. He's got power, wealth. He sins and does what he wants. Whatever he pleases, no one's there to stop him. But he wants to stop and listen to this man who has none of these things. You know, I'm convinced that Herod is unsatisfied. The world will look at Herod and envy him. But Herod looks at this man who sits in his own prison and he envies that guy. He envies John because John seems to have found the answer to life, to joy, to purpose. He chases other things that Herod isn't chasing and he's so satisfied. That's the aroma of Christ. It's when we as Christians, we don't chase the things the world chases. We don't live by the moral code of the world. We seem to live a foolish life and yet are so deeply satisfied. You know, each of us today, we sit in the seat of Herod or John. You know, as a Christian, uh, if you are a Christian, the call is to be more like John, who's really trying to be more like Jesus. You know, to love Jesus, to obey him, to be different, to run the opposite way, in a sense, of the world. That in the eyes of the world, we'll waste our lives. Waste our lives doing foolish things. You know, but to those whom God is working in, they will see the attraction of that. They will see this different kind of life, this different kind of um, you know, king that we serve, this kingdom that we live by, and they will be attracted to that aroma. And we need to be different in order to make a difference. But some of us, we are non-Christians. And we sit in the seat of Herod. And the call is to keep wrestling through that internal kind of battle inside of you between being perplexed and hearing gladly. Because the gospel, um, there's a phrase, it, it disturbs the comfortable, but then it comforts the disturbed. You know, it disturbs you out of your comfort because it tells you that you are in sin, that there is a problem that you need to be saved, that God is real, and hell is real, and judgment is real, and it's all coming eventually, right? It disturbs the comfortable, but then it also comforts the disturbed. In that place of discomfort, the gospel also has a message that invites you to be forgiven, right? To be loved by the Father, to find your place that you're always meant to be at, right, in his arms, in his family, right, for eternity, Right? Go through that kind of battle within you. Keep hearing. And then in time, believe. All right, that is the gospel message. And so here we have number one, the aroma of a godly life. Well, we're going to move on. We're going to go to number two and the claim of a godly death. The story continues, and as we all know, John dies. Right, in verse 21, I'm just going to kind of go through the rest of the verses and give some commentary. Verse twenty one, it says, um, an opportunity came. Right, if you have your Bible, you know, just kind of follow along. Verse twenty one, it says, an opportunity came, and this opportunity is an opportunity for Herodias to kill John. Right, because that's what sin does. Right, sin wants to get rid of whatever is limiting you from enjoying itself, enjoying sin. And so Herodias wants to get rid of, get rid of John, so she can keep living in sin. Now, it says, Herod, on his birthday, he gave a banquet for his nobles and military, military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Now, I mentioned before, this is a common thing for rich people. They have a big birthday party, lavish style. There's food, there's wine, there's entertainment, kind of, you know, not um, PG rated entertainment, like women dancing, stuff like that. And as the night goes on, it gets wilder, gets rowdier. And at this banquet, uh, it says Herod's got, you know, the who's who of everyone, nobles, commanders, the leading men, Uh, people that are impressive, people that Herod wants to impress. Verse 22, it says that Herodias' daughter, she came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. Now I don't know about you, but I always imagined when Herodias' daughter comes and dances that it's this cute little girl, you know, dancing in a little skirt, and everyone's like, "Oh, that's so cute." Uh, The reality is, uh, um, the reality is, uh, she's not a small girl; Um, she's a young woman. Right? That's that's the likely um, of what's going on. It's unlikely that Herod would, you know, take the head of John. it on a platter and give it to a girl um it's most likely a a young woman um and so this is an acute child's dance the dance is like a a young woman's erotic dance again doing what the entertainers were meant to do and so everyone's drunk everyone's like you know it's deep into the night you know this this royal daughter is is doing an erotic dance everyone's like laughing this is impressive and caught up in the moment and caught up with lots of wine uh, herod the king says to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Right? Verse 23, and he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. You know, it's kind of the thing you'd say when you're drunk. It's actually what Queen Esther is offered in Esther Fire, right? It's the exact same thing. And as we pause here, here's this woman offered whatever she wants. What's she going what to ask for? Pony, clothes, house, you know, anything. She runs to her mom, verse 24, and her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. She rushes, rushes back and she says, I want it now. Right? Not, not, don't think about it later. I don't have time to think about it. When all of these people are here watching, I want it now. And verse 26, it says, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Herod's in genuine anguish. He doesn't know what to do. Now, the word exceedingly sorry is only found in one other place in the New Testament. Mark 14, verse 34, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane in agony. Right? This is the kind of feeling that Herod's going through. He's in a difficult place. And what's he going to choose? You know, this is the moment where Herod has to choose his allegiance. He's lived a life of power, wealth, and immorality. But John has modeled a different kind of living, a life that, you know, isn't ruled by these things, but rules over them, casts them aside even to pursue God. And Herod now has to choose. Is he going to choose the life that he's been living and reject John and God and kill him? Or is he going to reject the life that he's lived and preserve and protect John? If he protects John, it means he's standing against the wishes of his wife and daughter. He's going to lose credibility. The nobles, commanders, leading men around them. He's already boasted, I'll give you half of my kingdom. Are these people that are going to go off and tell other people, you know, Herod, he can't even keep his word. He might lose respect. He might lose power. He might lose some of his wealth. Is he willing to do that? Or will Herod chase after and keep his power keep his wealth and kill a man that he knows is righteous and holy, right? What is very much an innocent man? Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded John in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And so there it is. And in this moment, we see the death of a man, a life gone to waste, a life with much potential in the hands of God come to an end, a man worth pitying. But as I say these things, I'm not talking about John. I'm talking about Herod. We see really the death of Herod, a life gone to waste. Herod had potential in the hands of God, but it all comes to an end. Herod, A man worth pitying. You see, in this story, we see the death of two people. John loses his life, but Herod, he loses his soul to never recover this moment of sensitivity to the work of God. Herod turns his back on his conscience that was beginning to be stirred, and he doesn't find it again. You know, when we look at Herod through the rest of the scriptures, his heart grows colder and colder, and he turns more away from God. You know, this story of John the Baptist being beheaded is actually a flashback, right? which is why we started, you know, um, later down in our passage. If you go up to verse 14, where, you know, we come to our current moment in Mark chapter 6, in the timeline of Mark, um, John's already dead. And it says that Jesus' name is being spread. Herod hears about Jesus, and in verse 16 it says, when Herod heard of Jesus and all that he's doing, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. When Herod hears about Jesus, he thinks of John. And the emphasis is John, whom I beheaded, I did it, right? He's thinking about John, and that's why we have the flashback of John being beheaded. And there's a moment right at the end of um, the scriptures when Herod actually gets to meet this Jesus, This is the last time we hear of Herod. It's in Luke chapter 23. By this time in Luke 23, uh, uh, Jesus has been captured by the Jews. They want to execute him. And so Pilate, he sends Jesus to Herod because he doesn't know what to do with him. He sends him to Herod. And remember, Herod thinks Jesus is John or he used to at least think Jesus might be John. And so in Luke 23, verse eight, he meets Jesus. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. Again, heard about him in Mark 6, our passage today. And so what's Herod going to do? He's finally met Jesus. Is he going to say sorry because he still has a conscience and he's been you know, in agony that he killed John and he's repentant and it's like, are, are you John? I'm sorry I killed you. I'm sorry I killed God's messenger. I just want to find a way back to God. Is that is that, is that why he wants to meet Jesus? Does he even care? Is his conscience there? Why is he so glad? That's what he says. He's very glad. He desires to see Jesus. It's really sad what you read. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. This is why. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. That's why. Not to say sorry, not to repent, not because there's guilt driving him back to God. He he just wants to see something amusing. He wants to have some entertainment. Verse 11, it says, Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. At one time in Herod's life, he was able to, be face-to-face with John, and recognize that John was a righteous and holy man. But whatever spiritual sight he once had, it's gone. That stirring of the conscience, it's gone. Because now he's standing face-to-face, not with a righteous and holy man, but the righteous and holy man, right? Perfect righteousness. The holiest man alive. And and he, he can't see it. He treats that God, the Son, with contempt he mocks him. And there is no guilt. There's no regret. There's no desire, right? There's no longing to be back to God. When he beheads John, it's like his heart closes up. He turns away from God and he just falls away further and further. You know, for those of us who, whose conscience is being moved by God to turn from worldly living, to turn from sin back to him, whether as a Christian or not, you know, we must not ignore those areas of our lives. We must be driven back to God. We must repent. We must surrender. You know if we bury those things in our lives that God is exposing, we might end up like Herod, our hearts growing more closed off and apathetic because we fear people, because we love sin too much, like Herod, we turn from God, your heart will grow colder and colder. You know, when you look at the life of John, you know, at a glance, we kind of pity him. You look at the life of Herod, we kind of envy him. But John lived a better life. John died the better death, right? Even though in the eyes of the world, it didn't seem so. Herod had power, he had wealth, he lived the way he wanted to, but John, John had the aroma of a godly life. And even Herod, despite all he had, was fascinated by John, perplexed, but heard him gladly. And even though John's life is cut short in today's passage, early 30s, it wasn't wasted. It wasn't meaningless. It's not him that should be pitied. John died a meaningful death. He didn't just live the opposite of Herod. He, in fact, dies the opposite of Herod. Because John dies with courage. He's bold to Herod, speaking the truth, not giving up his faith, no matter what it costs. But Herod, he lives and dies so filled with fear, afraid of what the people around him would think. John lived a short life, but he lived that short life well. He lived it with purpose, with meaning on mission for God. He didn't compromise But Herod continued to live that day, but was still missing all those things. He lived another day, but it was an empty day, an empty life. John lost his life, but he kept his soul. Herod kept his life, but he lost his soul. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's Mark chapter 8, verse 36. So, which life is the better life lived? By which death? is a better death to die, right? I say, John, that's the life and death we should aim to live and die. I started today talking about Jim Elliott. Uh, he and his friends died very young. Jim died at 28, 28. You look at that life and you think, maybe you think, what a waste. You think, what did he accomplish, right? He, No one was saved in that tribe. Uh, you know, though Jim and Elliot saw kind of no fruit with their own eyes, you know, they lived a life with the aroma of a godly life. They, they died with the claim of a godly death. And God did not waste their life or death. You know, their deaths, you may know, was a catalyst, right? We look back, their deaths actually sparked a huge uh, missionary movement in America. And right? as people heard about what they did, Uh, There was an outpour of funding to missions and many, many people put their hands up to go on missions, right? You might think it would do the opposite hearing of these people dying at a young age. No, it did the opposite. And the church rose up and many missionaries through hearing that story would go and obey God. Elliot and his friends actually appeared in the life magazine, a 10 page article his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, would go on to publish many books. I think she's written over 20 books. Some of them are quite famous. Schools will be named after him that have musicals and movies. And his wife and other family members would actually go back to that very tribe. And they will see many of those people come to faith. Some of them were a part of the 10 that killed you know, the missionary, uh, the five missionaries. That's not a wasted life. That's not a wasted death. And Jim Elliot wrote in his journal, "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to gain which he cannot lose." Right? You might have heard me quote that before. He says, "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to gain which he cannot lose." Right? In the eyes of the world, Jim Elliot and John the Baptist, they're fools their lives end quickly without meaning, they think. But according to Jim, what he's saying is that he just gave up something temporary to gain something eternal. That's not foolish, that's wise. And I think Jim Elliot would look at the life of Herod and he'd say that's foolish because that man, right? he won't give up what's temporary to gain that which is eternal. Herod because he was afraid of the people around him, because he loved his sin, he gave up God. That's foolish, no matter how many days he lived. And the last week's sermon was about God's mighty mission being fulfilled through God's modest means. And today is just another reminder that he is on mission using his modest means, that you and I can be a part of that as we exude the aroma of a godly life that we might attract people to this opposite way of living and that we might share in the acclaim of a godly death or a death that has meaning in the eyes of God.